1973, five days before I was to become husband to Sally Tarrant, my father was working on a paint job in Garland, Texas. He was 50 years old. He'd been retired for about 90 days. And suddenly we were at a trailer home getting things ready for the house that we were going to be moving into soon. And a knock came on the door and it turned out to be an uncle of mine who met me at the door and said, your dad has had a heart attack. Now, that didn't seem possible. My dad was 50 years old and big as the sky. All those things that dads are to sons and yet they said he's in bad shape. And so immediately... Before Sally and I ever got married, I scared her half to death on the drive to Garland from Farmersville. It's probably the only time she didn't say much about my driving. Thank you for that, Sally. That was a moment of strength for you, I know. A moment of great courage. We got there and we heard the news that he was hanging on to life by a thread. And that we'd just have to wait. And I remember walking out of the hospital that at that time was filled because all of our, both sides of our family lived in Garland and the place was running over with people and I really didn't want any people and I really couldn't talk. So I found my way out of the hospital to the grounds outside and I, I just sat down on the grass and I was sobbing and I was so angry at my good, good father that my dad who had worked all these years all of his life and finally got to retire and was in there fighting for his very life. It seemed so unfair. And at that moment, God and I reconnected again in that quiet time. He reminded me of his love for me and for my father. And to make a long story short, my father lived. He came around after about three days and said the first thing that was on my mind, go ahead with the wedding. He was to be my best man at the wedding, but he... He would not have us postponing the wedding, which was very much in my heart because I just didn't feel like that was the right time. But Daddy said, do it. I was used to doing what Daddy said, do. So I did. I guess he knew who he was talking about these 43 years later. The, she does not quite anymore when I drive, but she's still in the car at least. In 1995, after... Other heart problems during his life and after a stroke that he hated to survive. After three and a half years of my mama caring for him day and night, daddy went to be with the Lord. And in the span of those years, I had more than 20 more years with my father that I almost lost when I was a very young man. Having a good, good father with you on earth is a precious gift. But I have not lost my my good, good father on earth because he's still with me. His memories in my, are fresh in my mind and are a guide for my life. I think it worked out very well that Father's Day fell in this part of the, of the book of Galatians that I was going to be preaching from. The, the sermon came first and then the Father's Day part came later because you see the passage of Scripture I'm about to read you from Galatians, Paul's writing to the church there, and he's continuing his discussion about what it means to be accepted by, by God, what it means to be a follower of Christ. He's trying to make it clear because 
though many thought they were following Christ through obedience to the law, Paul was so centered on getting them to understand what it meant to be accepted by God and how that can be accomplished in a person's life. Because he knew that every person, if they live a normal age life, loses their father on this earth and they need another father in heaven. And they need him a long time before that because they need that father to help mold them to the person that God has planned for them to be. So I want to read these few verses to you. Paul writes to the church in Galatians 2, 15 through 21, and I'm going to let you sit today. But I want you to sit and soak in these words. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The word of God for the people of God. When we try to unpack these words in this scripture, we come face to face with what we Christians claim is our reality. We claim, for instance, that we have been saved, especially in the South. We love that that saying. We claim, I have been born again. It's not just a Baptist word. It's a Methodist word, a Presbyterian word, Episcopalian word, a Catholic word. Being born again is an important thing for Christians to say. We claim and believe it to be true that God is our friend, that God accepts me, that God is cool with me and who I am, so to speak. We like to think that we are getting right with God and, in fact, are right with God because of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. And that is precisely true when we have followed the teachings of the Scripture. This is going to be the first part of a two-part sermon series on what it means to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Because though we know the reality of what is about to happen in that situation, sometimes we have very confusing definitions with what the Scriptures really have to say about being right with God. Sometimes we claim something we do not have because no one has ever taught us, nor have we been willing to hear exactly what it means to be right with God. In the society in which we live today, this is a very hard concept. 
I've been to very few funerals in this day and age when they leave the cemetery and someone says, well, I wonder where that person is. It's almost like if you're an American and you die and you, you drifted by a church once or twice in your life, you're going to heaven. And I'll admit, as a pastor, I don't go to preach funerals and tell the people that their loved one is separated from God for eternity. I don't do that. What I do find, however, is that oftentimes it's, I need to be very careful with what I say because people have been watching the person who has passed away before me and know that that person does not have a relationship with God that is very visible for anyone to see. And I never want to be guilty, and never did, of trying to preach someone into heaven because that's not my task, nor is it my ability, nor is it anyone else's ability. But it also is not a need at a funeral to hurt a family because, quite frankly, I'm expecting when I get to heaven to see a lot of people that I'm going to be surprised they're there. Some of you will find solace in that fact. I'm also certain that when I get to heaven, I'm going to look for some people that I'm worrying to share part of eternity with, and I will not find them. Those thoughts push me as one who follows Christ to try and be sure that I'm clear about what it means to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be cool with God. It's also important to me to make sure that those around me who are suffering through at times what I'm teaching or preaching, that they never are suffering through what I understand salvation to be. Because after all, I'm not talking about the next 60 years here. I'm talking about eternity. I already know far more people in eternity than I know on this earth because I'm getting to that age. I'm going to way too many funerals. And I'm aware that soon I'll be attending my own. And you say, do you know something we don't know? Yes, I do know something some of you don't know because you're just too young so far. But as you get older, you realize that the time is drawing near, relatively speaking, when you're going to have fewer years left here on earth than you have in eternity. And I could ask for witness, and I could get a witness among a number of people who have grown old enough to come to that stark reality that, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. You said, when did that come to your senses, Doug? Well, after I'd done about 30 or 40 funerals, uh, but really it came after my daddy died. When we, had, when we buried my dad, I had to come face to face with the reality, that, well, if even my daddy's going to die, I guess I am too. Took me a little while to get over that. I don't mind sharing that with you, but I did get over it. I'm going to die too. And by the way, so are you. We don't get out of this world without dying unless Christ returns first. And I'm, we've been waiting for that for 2,000 years. It may be another 2,000. Or it may be 20 minutes or so before I get through with this sermon. Who knows? But unless that happens, unless that happens, we all are going to taste physical death. So it's important for us to know how we become justified. And I'm, I'm looking at the big picture today. Next week, I'm looking at the specifics. But today, I'm looking at how we're justified through faith in Christ and what that means. Sola fide, the words made popular in Mark, through Martin Luther, you're saved by faith and faith alone, became the battle cry for Protestant Christianity. 
when they stood up and said, it's not through obedience to laws or rules or even the rules of the church that one is saved, but one is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And that sounds what everybody says today, and it's true. That's what people say today. People say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. It, even, even if I try as hard as I can, I still make mistakes. But thanks God, I, I'm not saved by the works of the law, so I just don't worry about works anymore. I, I, I'm not too worried about that. I'm saved through faith alone, and I believe Jesus was the Son of God. Now, what I'm going to unpack next week is what, is what does that mean biblically? What does it mean to say I believe in Jesus Christ? I'll give you a hint. It's more than just mental assent. It's more than just saying Jesus was the Son of God. That comes next week. But for this week, I want you to think about the condition of humanity before Jesus died for our sins. Think about the Jews who were struggling and working hard to be justified by keeping the law of Moses. Which, by the way, the law of Moses started out as the law of God. And then it became the law of Judaism. And then it became the law of Moses. And then it had all kinds of stuff attached to it, right? And by the time that Jesus came along and died... Peter and Paul were getting into kind of a scrapping match over what that meant because, you see, the Jews still, as I talked about last week, thought that you still had to be a Jew in order to go to heaven with your faith in Christ, that you still had to keep all the Jewish customs, that you still had to keep all the Jewish rituals, the men still needed to be circumcised. In short, all of that was as much a part of being saved as was faith in Christ. And Paul says, no, 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 that's over. The Judaism form of law, the Judaistic laws, cannot save you and never can. Christ has come to pay the penalty for your sin now because we are all human and we all fall short of following Christ. And that is the only way to heaven. First of all, you can't keep the law of Moses perfectly. And second of all, if you did, even that couldn't save you because you can't. You're human, and you're swallowed up in sin. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? Once we become willful, and who do we know it's not willful? Michael Lou, my second child, grandchild. I think she's in the nursery. I haven't seen her wandering around, nor have I heard her. And that's a pretty good sign that she's not here. It's two and a half. Michael Lou already knows what it means to be willful. Boy, she knows it well. She's built a lot like her Papa, she has a strong, strong will. And I watch her mother and her father trying to talk her off the cliff of her willfulness. And occasionally they need more than words. And I watch all of that, and sometimes it's me when I'm there alone, and she gives me that look. No! And then the left hand comes back. She's got that left hand raised, to strike out at whoever's trying to make her do something she doesn't want to do. Now we've progressed that the left hand just comes back. Occasionally it may flick at you or touch you. There's no more hitting. That got to be too painful for her in many different ways. (laughs) And so finally she decided she just wants you to know that, no, I want to hit you, but you're bigger than I am. She knows it. Even as sweet as she is, and she can be so sweet, she's still Michael Lou. And there's a streak in her that's strong and willful. She 
she needs to be justified by the love of her mother and father. Not because of who she is or what she's doing right, but because she belongs to them and to us as her extended family. That's the case of us all. We're never going to be completely surrendered to God. We can become that way in the idea of Christian perfection according to what we intend to do, but we never will reach mental, emotional, and physical perfection in the purest of senses because we're human. We can't be that good to satisfy God. It's not possible. So here's the cool thing about that. Once that had been illustrated through the law of Moses, then God was ready to take the next best and last step in the salvation of his children, his creation. He looked down upon us and said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then he decided that he would send his son, that the part of the Trinity would come to earth, and he would be the Christ of faith and whom we would believe in faith. He would be perfect. He would be without sin. So the Christ of faith and the Christ in faith are both necessary. We believe in Christ. We have pistuo in Christ, to use the Greek word, because the American word is so bad. Because when we think believe, but that's next week's sermon, right? We won't go there. Believe, what does it mean? But if Christ had not been worthy of God's trust and lived faithfully, then our trust in Christ would be in vain. It's interesting that in the Greek, the the prepositions in and of are really the same word. And when used in Scripture, they often mean both and, which is exactly what it means in this case. The Christ of faith and the Christ we believe in faith is a path to to our salvation. It's extremely difficult for Peter and Paul both to set aside the law. They had learned that to contrive a law that they could actually obey, they tricked themselves into believing They could not be perfect, but many times they felt perfect. You know, they even created tassels to wear on their clothing. And the more perfect you are, the more tassels you put on your clothes. What a joke to God (laughs) that somehow we do works that are perfect. But not in their day and age. Obeying the law was what they had to have in order to feel like they were forgiven and that they be God's people. And we said, boy, I'm glad I, didn't, I wasn't alive in that because I sure don't count on my works of the flesh to do anything for me. Right? How many people do you know that go to church out of guilt? How many people do you know that think that when they check the box, present four Sundays in a month, most of the months, that when they die, they go to heaven? I'm not for sure they're checking church attendance in heaven. Just thought I'd drop that hint. I think they might be checking what's coming out of your mouth about 24-7. I think they might be looking into your heart, God might, to see what's really in there 24-7. 
We just can't do things that cause our acceptance. Now, hear me closely. I'll speak more about it next week, but I'm not saying works don't matter because works do. But works done for the purpose of getting accepted by God are a wasted effort. Do you get the difference? Works done after accepting God and being in a relationship with God are a good thing, an expected thing, and a normal thing. And if they're not present, then someone has not truly trusted Christ. You can't just say you believe in Jesus and have everything accomplished. It has to affect your life. Because you see, when you're justified, there's a two-step process. First of all, the God who could not fellowship with you because you were sinful can now accept you, not because of your righteousness or your own holy works, but because of the works of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so now we can be loved by God. And it's a good, good feeling, isn't it? It's a good, good feeling to know God loves you. But you know, something else happens. Not just is that relationship restored, but we are born again. We are a different creature when we really have trusted Jesus. How different? Chad loves to tell stories about his prison ministry that he takes part in. And he, you know, I look forward to every time he goes off to a prison walk. I know he's very tired when he comes back in because then I hear the stories. I hear the stories about men because he's in a male prison. And I hear the stories about men who've never felt love, about men who've never had a present father, about people who don't have anything correct about Jesus or the church or the kingdom. He sees people who are completely devoid of what it really means to be Christian, find Christ just like you went overseas and told somebody about it for the first time then never heard it. He sees men and women so changed that their families come to visit them at the prison and their mothers don't know them because they're so different, even, by, even separated by the bars, they're so different they can't believe it. Ex-spouses come back to prisons and see them and they can't believe it. And one man told Chad recently, after just having that experience, I'm going to see in five days my child who was conceived before I went to prison. And I've never seen him for 10 years. Thank God that God set me free. And thank God my wife has forgiven me now, just like my father. And thank God I'm going to get to see my son. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a salvation that doesn't just change our relationship to God, but it changes us. Now, sometimes it's not so dramatic. I know for some of us, and it's very dangerous to get a little bit of Jesus all along when you're raised in church. You've got to remember to celebrate those moments when something big happens, because otherwise we get willful again. We draw our left hand back. We need not to do that. And the closer we get to God, the better we'll be in that regard. But that's what I want to get across today is that this faith in Jesus because of the faithfulness of Jesus toward the Father is the very reason and the only way that we can be accepted by God. That is it, and it's the final plan. There's not another way. And that has something to say about Father's Day. That has something, this just dawned on me. Actually, last night sometime. Um, You say, last night? Yeah, while I was sleeping. I get a lot of my sermon ideas that way. Thank God. The implications it has for fathers today is, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know, I want to do something. I want to throw something. 
I want to take the baptismal bowl and sail it across like a Frisbee so that the water just flies everywhere and everybody gets wet. You say, why do you want to do that? Because I want to be sure that everybody's awake. I, I don't want a male out here to miss this. And I don't want a female out here to miss this because you may have to explain it to your husband when you get home. <laughs> and you may have to explain it to your older children. So I want you awake. I want you awake because, you see, what really happened is here we were, hopeless, helpless, going to hell. And our good, good father, he made a path by sending his son Jesus that we could follow so he could be with us again. He wanted to be with us so badly, he would sacrifice himself, so to speak, just to repair the relationship with his children. Now, fathers, you want to be a good father? Here's what I'm going to tell you, and I'm not sugarcoating it, and I mean every word of it. Be like God. Be willing to do whatever it takes to create a relationship with your children be, do, be willing to do whatever it takes to maintain a relationship with your children, even to the point of sacrificing yourself, your time, your energy, your money, your thoughts, your prayers, your presence. Main, create and maintain that relationship first. Establish it. And as you get older and your children are, are gone from you constantly and they're older, you've got more time, grandfathers, to establish relationships with the neighborhood children. Many of them do not have a father that are taking them to church. You're their father. You say, well, I, I don't want to do that now. Well, I don't care what you want to do. You need to do it because you're being called to do it. If you call yourself Christian, you can't watch any child wandering around without a father figure. If you are, you need to come see me because you're in debt and you need more water. You're in danger. When you get cold to the realities of a child who's lost, then you're not being a good, good father. I don't care if you raise six who are great Christians and you're, you're on retirement Christian living. There is no such thing. That's why when I would come home and see my father, every little scallywag lived on the street or up the county road from us, they'd be hanging out with my daddy. And I get there to visit my daddy, and, you know, I'm there to see daddy, and he's fooling around with this 12-year-old kid up the street. Daddy, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he needs me. You've already had me. You've got to create that relationship. It's different with girls and boys, dads, but that doesn't mean you get to opt out of one or the other. It's different, and it's not easy to keep that relationship I've got two near-perfect daughters, different in every way, and both of them had their moments when I was nose-to-nose -nose with them, and I was thinking about sending them back to Jesus. <laughs> and for every moment I thought that, they had hours they were thinking about sending me to Jesus. I know that. I didn't get it. I didn't understand how swimming suits were supposed to fit. I just knew what swimsuits were supposed to cover. <laughs> now, that's a funny illustration given what we're going to do tonight. <laughs> we are going to the swimming pool. And I remember when the, my wife finally said, you don't like their swimming suits? You go with us to pick them out. And I said, okay. An hour and a half later, I started mumbling and said, I'm ready to go home. Buy whatever you're going to buy. 
They tried on everything in the store, and they, none of them suited me. Of course, I want them to wear a big, long bag. <laughs> Be a good, good father. Maintain that relationship. You say, but they go astray, and I can't help it. Go after them. But I can't help it. They won't obey me. Go after them. And when you go after them, go after them with graceful teaching, with forgiveness, with love. Yes, discipline is when they're young. When they're older, you don't get to turn your back on them, though, just because they're married and gone. They're still your children. You don't quit praying for them. You don't quit forgiving them. You do quit trying to run their every thought and their every action because they're adults now, but you don't give up. And the second thing, and then I'm through. I know I don't want to get in my own Father's Day luncheon. I kind of do, actually. But once you've created a relationship, once you're intent on keeping it to the point of sacrificing yourself, then you need to encourage and assist your children to become the best they can be, to live the best that they can live. You need to encourage them to be recreated constantly in their life. You owe them that. God is still transforming you if you're still alive in Christ. And you need to be still working in their lives trying to help them be the best they can be. It's just a different. It's different when they're 10 and you're trying to help them be the best they can be and when they're 35. But you still need to be working at it. Because this work of perfecting their hearts and their minds and their thoughts, it never ends. Romans 8, 28 says this, and you need to remember it. You need to quote it to them lovingly, gracefully, and at the appropriate time, often. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We need to invest ourselves in our children, even when they're adults, so they keep learning that over and over again in the good times and in the bad. And so finally, I want to say this. Your most important task as a male human being on this earth who's a follower of Christ is to be a good, good father with a small F. Only God can be the good, good father with a capital F. But each one of you can be the good, good father with a small F. You can give whatever it takes in patience and time and energy and retraining of yourself. You can only be the father they have. You are another man. You're not any good at being a mother. You just need to be the man in the house who's a good, good father. 